Does every storm in life that you have require so much faith that if you just believe God, he will automatically take away the, st the storm? Does that mean that if you have cancer, he'll automatically heal you? If you have heart disease, he's going to fix that. If you have something else going on in your life, someone that you're praying for, if you just have the faith, that's automatically going to happen. So what did he really mean by that when he looked at them and said, where is your faith? You know, when we look at the power of Jesus Christ in our life, we ask the same two questions all the time, whether we realize it or not. Will you, God? Will you? Can you? And will you? We looked last week at the will you a little bit more, but this morning we look at the power of Christ. Because you recall Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He was telling the Jewish people, he said, you need a Savior just like everybody else. Now I'm going to show you that I am the Savior. And he did that through working through different miracles in chapters 8 and following, 8 through 12. As we look at this, we, it's good, before we answer any of these questions, to remember what God's goal is for our lives. As you recall, and I've, I've shared this with in fact, let me just say this, that what I'm about to share with you, this little diagram here, is how I present the gospel usually to people. Uh, these days, and it's called the three circles, and it begins with God's design. God's design is for you and I to have a relationship with him. When God created Adam and Eve, that was God's design, to live perfectly in the garden, have a great time uh, fellowshipping with God with one another, perfect family, but something happened to break us, and that was sin. The Bible says, through one man, sin entered in the world, Adam, and so be it, de death passed to all men for all of sin. So we went through a brokenness time, and that's what we go through, and that's what we're born into, and the cross is the remedy for that. God demonstrated his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I want you to notice at the cross in this diagram, that's where salvation happens, but notice there's an arrow going back to God's design. The Bible says in Romans 8, 28, that God, or uh, verse 29 actually, that God's goal for our life is to be conformed to the image of his son. And so once God has, we, we've gone through brokenness and God has saved us, the design, the, the, the goal is to get us back to God's design. Now you can say, well, you know, it's forgiveness of sin. Somebody else says, well, no, it's, it's to return, get the brokenness and the hurt out of our life. Yes, it is. Yes, it is forgiveness of sin. It's to reconcile us to God. It's to redeem us from the lost condition. All that's true, but you could put it all under one umbrella and say that God wants us to get back to his original design. Now, we look at this, and if, as Jesus is presenting himself to us today through the Gospels, we realize that God must have then power over everything in our life that's going to keep us from that design. And we're going to find out through this passage this morning that he, exact, he does have that exact power through the trials of life. That is the results that happen in our life. He has the power over that. He has the power over the enemy that has tempted us over and over and over again in our life. He has the power to forgive sins which is the very source and the basis to our relationship with God. And so as man fell, God wants to get us back to the original design. And we look at this passage this morning, and we see three different miracles that happen. Really, there's a pattern. We saw it last week, three miracles and a calling, three miracles and a commitment time, uh, a call to commitment. We're going to see that again today 
and we're just going to look briefly at the commitment part, but really over these three miracles that God speaks to us today. The first one is the calming of the storm. And so we're going to answer that question right off the bat. Does that mean if you have the faith, God's going to calm every storm? Let's look at it. It says in verse 23, and when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. You get the idea, and you get the idea from other passages in the scripture as it retells a story in Mark and Luke as well, that what was happening, Jesus was getting into the boat with some of his disciples and other boats were following along. And so they were following him. It says, behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus was asleep. And when he went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Let me give you a little background here. I've been to the, the Holy Land a, a few times, and I've seen the Sea of Galilee a couple of times. It's really a big lake, and uh, it was, had other names back then. We know it as the Sea of Galilee, and it's a 70, it 70 feet below sea level. Now, we know what that's about, kind of in Florida. But 30 miles away was Mount Hermon, and Mount Hermon was 9,200 feet above sea level. So you can imagine the mountain ranges. In fact, if you looked out on the Sea of Galilee, you could see Mount Hermon. You could see a lot of the other mountain ranges around it. It's like it's it's in a valley. And so when that water comes rushing down during the rainy seasons, you can get washed away in the Sea of Galilee. I remember we were going to take an afternoon trip and get on a boat, go out on the Sea of Galilee, and uh, we were going to see where Jesus was going to walk on the water. And that was, you know, that was, you know, my my duty. I had to get out and start walking on the water as a pastor. Not really. But anyway, anyway, what happened was we got to the boat and said, we can't go out today. Well, why not? The, the sea is too rough. And it was rough. So we go out there today, we're not coming back. All right? I said, well, let's not go out today. And so we waited until the next morning and did something else. Now, I say that to say this. When the, these experienced fishermen said, Lord, we're going to die, they weren't exaggerating. If Jesus had not stood up and done something, they would have died. They really didn't have any business at this point really being on the sea at this time. And so we look at it and we understand what's going on here. And in fact, it's sort of like, you know, maybe you feel like that in life sometime. You feel like, Lord, I am perishing. Unless you do something, it's bad. You feel like the Andrea Gale and the the Perfect Storm. That was a movie made a few years ago, but in 1991, in October of that year, a 72-foot long fishing boat with 365 horsepower, uh, turbocharged diesel engine, left for New England port to go into the Atlantic Ocean for a fishing trip. Commercial fishermen. They never came back. Why? Because they ran into the Perfect Storm. Ironically, it's called Hurricane Grace. You can believe that. And it had no grace on anybody who was out there. They stayed too long. They were caught in that storm. The storm would not let them out, and they all perished. And maybe you feel like you're in the perfect storm. Between family issues, job issues, health issues, and you think to yourself, God, I just simply cannot take anymore. And so what, what should I do? Well, I want you to notice in verse 26. He said to them, why are you afraid, O ye of little faith? That's the way, <coughs> excuse me, Matthew said it. Now in your King James Version, in the Gospel of Luke, <coughs> excuse me, 
tell you what, when you let yell at your wife all week, <clears throat> it really gets to you. Boy, this is a rough crowd. And you lead the way, buddy. That's all I've got to say. Just a joke. Now, here he stands up and he rebukes, he, he says, and the, he said in verse 26, why are you afraid of you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and sea, and there was a great calm. Now, in the movie you just saw, the movie about the Jesus film that Crusade put out is verse by verse right through the Gospel of Luke. And in that one, it says, where's your faith? And this one, it says, why don't you have any? You have such little faith. And he arose and rebuked, this is the same word, and casting out a demon. So he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Now, why in the world would he look at them and say, oh, you of little faith? Oh, it's because he's done this miracle and this miracle. And I agree with all that. That, that could be it. When God shows himself strong in your behalf, and you, and you wonder once again that you doubt him again, that, that has a question of your faith. But the key is here, here is in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, and Mark just tells the same story with little different nuances along the way as he saw it, or as Peter saw it, I should say, in telling it to Mark. But in the Gospel of Mark, <clears throat> it says that he said, let's go to the other side. Now, as, as the disciples were dying there and perishing, I'm sure they didn't analyze everything that was going on. But they had to think to themselves, look, we left everything. I, I left my fishing business. I left my, my mom and my dad. You know, maybe the Apostle John was thinking that. And I left all this stuff to follow Jesus, and we're just going to die in the lake? We're going to die in the Sea of Galilee. That's what the faith was all about. It, it was not that they were going through a, a trial in life, and that thing was supposed to, to suddenly blow away without any repercussions whatsoever. The idea was, look, I told you to come and follow me. I will make you fishers of men. You, I told you to come and follow me. And he made all kinds of promises. Let's go to the other side. And now they were thinking that Jesus was going to just let them die in the lake without fulfilling the vision. That's what that was all about. It was a promise. You see, you and I can get yes answers to our prayers 100% of the time if we knew the promise of God. Now, we may have to wait on it, but if there's a promise, then God always keeps his promises. The problem is sometimes we go through a trial in life and we have no promise. You know, sometimes that trial in life brings death to us. It brings death to someone else. We all die. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And because we live in a sinful world and because Adam sinned, we inherited death, we're going to die and we're going to go into eternity. But has God made you a promise? When he makes you a promise... He's always going to keep it. Now, you see, there's reasons why we have storms in life, trials in life. One of them could be due, due because we bring it upon ourselves, it's sin, but there's other things as well. There's point, they point us to Christ. In fact, when we go through trials in life, it's that time that we really introspect things about our own life. We really look deep on the inside to see what's there. So it points us to Christ. It builds our faith. It's like stretching. You might say, you know, when you blow up a balloon for one of your kids or grandkids, you have to stretch it out a little bit. You have to, you, you have to get it going where it's a little bit less, less difficult to blow up the balloon. God is stretching our faith. 
It also matures us. James 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He says, go to the other side. There's a promise there. But listen, if there's no storm in your life, then there are no miracles. Notice the miracle happened out on the Sea of Galilee. The miracle happened when the storm was going on. The miracle happened when they were even close to death. That's where the miracles occur. If you never go through any trials in life, you're just not going to have that. Here, the Bible will call us at the end of this passage as he calls Matthew to follow him. He's calling us to take our hands off our own life, to put Jesus on the throne. You say, well, you know, if I do that, if I do that, then I don't know if I can really trust him. What, what if my business doesn't make it? What if, what if my family doesn't really do what I want them to do? What if, things don't, what if things do not work out in my life like I plan them to and want them to and desire them? If that is above our relationship with God, then we haven't taken our hands off our own life. And so we trust him. We place our trust. Now listen, in this passage, something we don't see is the fact that this storm is like a hurricane. It's not a hurricane, but it had hurricane force-like symptoms because it's on the Sea of Galilee. Where it is, the, 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 uh, the difference in the altitude change. We've been through hurricanes before. How many have you been through a hurricane before? Now, you go on the news, right? You, you go on the news and, and you tune into the Weather Channel, perhaps, or something local, and it says, we have 19 different patterns this uh, hurricane can take. Nineteen. It could end up somewhere in Mexico or New York City. We don't know. Why are they saying that? Because they don't know. They don't know. Why do they not know? Because you can't control it. The storms of life are just simply uncontrollable. In Matthew 7, when Jesus gave that, that story, that parable, ending up the Sermon on the Mount that we went over just a few weeks ago, he said, if you go through these sayings of mine, I'm going to liken you into a person who built his house upon a rock. The storms of life came and it stood because it was founded upon the foundation of the rock, Jesus Christ. If you do not, however, build on the rock, you're just building on the sand, whatever there. The storms of life are going to come and great is its fall. Now, one of the things we established in that passage is that the storms of life always come, no matter what. And they're uncontrollable. And who can control the power of God? Who can do that? Who can say, well, through prayer, I'm going to, you know, not even prayer can control the power of God. No one controls God. He is uncontrollable. And so an uncontrollable force of God met an uncontrollable storm, and Jesus won. Because Jesus, his uncontrollable power, as far as uncontrollable to us, is tempered by his love and guided by his love and his grace toward us. So we can go outside and say, hey, look, I'm just going to take my chances with a storm. I'm just going to trust in myself, take my hands, put them on my own life, and trust in myself that these storms, I can control these storms. I can get by, I can weave around these storms, and I can, I can board up maybe a little bit for the storms of life. But they're uncontrollable. Or we can take our hands off our own life and trust an uncontrollable God 
who is controlled and constrained, the Bible says, himself by his love for us. And there's the lesson of the storm. Jesus controls, and Jesus has his hand on the trials of life, the results of sin in this world. But I want you to notice, secondly, that he also has control and power. Power is what we're looking at over also the tempter in life, the power that conquers our enemy. Look in verse 28. <coughs> when he came to the other side of the lake, the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass their way. A demonic force. And you say, well, let's just skip. Uh, let's just skip this passage. You know, pastor, I came uh, to your uh, series on angels and demons. A few hundred people were there, but not a lot of people are, you know, we're kind of leery of that. I mean, after all, you really don't believe in demons this, these days. I mean, there's mental illness and there's emotional problems and there's just meanness in this world. You can't possibly believe in that. Well, let me recall your attention again to what I said a couple of weeks ago. Some people believe, most people, in fact, in America, believe in a supernatural God. Then why don't we believe in supernatural acts? If you believe in a supernatural God, then why wouldn't you believe in supernatural beings that the God of the Bible talks about so often? There are demonic forces. Now, we think about a demon-possessed person as being in a horror movie. And this was the case, basically, with that. But the word de demon-possessed is not really in the Bible. It's demonization. And it could come to any kind of wave that comes across in our life. It could be that God will take control, or, or not God, but the demons will take control, will say, over your temper. He could take control over the lust in your life. You could take control over something else going on in your life, and, and this could be something that's, that's small, that's almost insignificant to the naked eye unless you live with a person. Or it could be full-fledged uh, psycho. Now, in the Bible, in Mark 4, it talks about mental illness. So it's not like in the Bible they, they said, oh, there's a demon behind every tree. And, and some people in churches believe that. There's just a demon behind every tree, and a demon is, is blamed for everything. Well, we can't go that far. In fact, Richard Baxter, years ago, uh, wrote and preached a sermon, and he said there's four basic sources to uh, mental and uh, emotional illness. One is physical. Even back then when he was preaching, he recognized the fact that sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's moral. He says, oh, because of guilt weighing upon you. Sometimes it is mental or emotional. And sometimes he says it's spiritual. Sometimes it is. Sometimes you cannot explain evil simply by the wickedness of man. W.H. Um, Oden, an English poet in the mid-1900s, um, was an atheist. And uh, his life changed. We went to a movie, and he saw this reel, this newsreel, um, about Nazi Germany. And it was Nazi Germany's spin over their takeover of Poland. And as he was sitting in the audience and they showed the Poles, the Polish people, on the screen, he said people around him by almost, almost everyone stood up and started jeering the Poles and said, kill them, kill them. And he said he walked out of that theater that day just totally changed, just, just awestruck about what happened. 
how people could be so inwardly wicked. And he came to the conclusion that unless there is a God in spiritual beings, he cannot explain the wickedness of man. He said there's no way that man himself could come up with that kind of wickedness that he's seeing in the world. He said, are we just products of evolution? And he, he basically said no. He said, that's Nazi Germany. They based their entire findings, their entire doctrine upon evolution. The fact that the, the Aryan race, the purest race, the lightest race, was a superior race. It was all based on evolution. And he says, no basis for right and wrong. He said, if there's no, no God involved in it, there's no basis for right and wrong. What, what right do I have to say that Nazi Germany was wrong? He said, people around me in England were saying, oh yeah, they're, they're evil people, evil people. And the same people were saying, there, there is no right and wrong. There is no absolute truth. And he turned to them and said, you know, look, I agree with you, but what right do you have to say that when you say there is no right and wrong? And if there is no God, then there is no really absolute good in the world. If there's no absolute good, then how can there be absolute evil? And if there's no absolute evil, how in the world could we even make a judgment call on someone being evil? We cannot explain all this without God. And he says, we cannot, he said, I could not. Without demonic forces being unleashed in the world, I could not explain the wickedness of Nazi Germany. And so you and I, we look at this, and we understand, I think Tim Keller has it best. He says, look, when we, anytime we give ourselves to something, we gain something. Notice what happens here. He says in verse 28, they were fierce and no one could pass their way. They were powerful. They really had supernatural type of power, power beyond their physical. So they gained something by following Satan, following their own way. And it's probably not anything they were doing to actually follow Satan. They just did what Satan wanted them to do. But we also lose something. You make a pact with whatever you're worshiping and it controls you. Whatever's your Lord is your master. For example, it may be a career. You, you want more, so you have a career. And so what happens? Well, maybe you're successful. You probably are and you have a little prestige and you have a little glory and you have a lot more money. But what do you give up? You give up something. We don't follow God and follow your career and put that first. You lose your relationships. Your relationship with God, relationship with your spouse, your children. You have stress in your life. Johnny Cash, that <clears throat> great theologian and philosopher <laughs> of yesteryear, and I'm, I'm trying to quote this off the cuff, see if I can do this. He said, the problem is the same definition of success in a nervous breakdown is the same thing. <laughs> Stress, drivenness, a slave to your time. You exploit maybe others to get ahead. You cut ethical corners. There's all kinds of things that you have to give up. When you don't take your hands off your own life, you grip your own life, you say, I want what I want, I'm putting this on the throne. Whatever's on the throne will give you something, it'll cost you more every time. And so notice in verse 29, what happens? Behold, they cried out, what have we to do with us? What do you have to do with us, O son of man? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Before the time means the final judgment in the book of Revelation. 
Now a herd of many pigs were feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, if you can cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. This is the first mention of deviled ham uh, in the Bible. <laughs> and the whole herd rushed down to the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And the herdsmen fled. Well, Notice, Jesus called out. He didn't call for a higher, higher power. It wasn't like the disciples when they called upon Jesus. He is the higher power. Amen. He doesn't have to call on anyone. He is that power, and he cast out those demons. We cast out the demons of brokenness and addiction. Why? Well, what's the formula? The formula is not necessarily be casting out demons because if you are demonized, it may be so, so small that it, you really can't recognize it to cast it out. And really, it's dealing with the sin and giving place to the devil in your life. So what do you do? You take your hands off your own life. You get so dedicated to the Lord that and every place in your life belongs to Jesus that you, the, devil, the devil has no place in it. The devil no longer has a place in your life because you're just seeking after the Lord. Whatever addiction, whatever you're looking at, Satan has been destroyed. Hebrews 2, 2, 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook, Jesus, of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, and that is the devil. He's defeated him. So Jesus says, look, I've got the power to bring you back to God's original design because I can overcome those trials and I can use those trials and overcome those storms in your life, those circumstances in your life that are due to the fall. I can also conquer the enemy in your life that is due to the fall. And finally, I can forgive your sin, which is due to the fall. Look with me. In verse, chapter 9, verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. This is Capernaum. Goes back to Capernaum where he started. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, many of you understand this story in the book of Mark where the friends lowered, the crowd was so big, they lowered him through the roof of the house. That's not told here in the book of Matthew. He has a different purpose for telling the stories. He's talking to the Jewish population. There's no indication here, by the way, that this, man, this man's uh, infirmity was due to his sin. Sometimes it is, but it, it, it could be in this case. But notice, he doesn't stand up right then. He doesn't. And behold, some, in fact, can you imagine, I mean, in the full story, they're lowering, they, they go and say, boy, the crowd's just too big. We can't get to Jesus. There's just no way. So let's carry our friend. And they, they hoist him up to the roof and they lowered him through the roof right there in front of Jesus. They go through all this trouble. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And his friends had to be thinking, well, that's great, but what about his legs? You know, what about, what about his leg? What about, you know, you know he, he's paralyzed. So he goes on. And behold, some of the scribes said to them themselves, this man is blaspheming, so there's a purpose here. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, 
your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's what this miracle is all about. Only God, he's right, the scribes were right. Only God has the power to forgive sins. And only God has the right to forgive sins because all of our sins are against God. And so you can't expect one person to forgive the sins of another person when they have nothing to do with it. No, if you've been sinned against, you're the one that needs, uh, or you've sinned against someone, you need forgiveness, and that other person only has the power to forgive you in your life. Well, since all sins are against God, only he has the right to forgive all sins. And the Bible says, rise and pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And the crowd saw it. They were afraid and they glorified God who have given him much, given such authority to men. Jesus is saying this. He says, the greatest need in your life is forgiveness of sin. Therefore, the greatest miracle in your life is to have your sins forgiven. The miracle was a sign to those that are around him that he was God in the flesh. This was huge. This is the first time really in the scriptures that we see that he's really taking a stand for this, that he's preaching this. Huge miracle here. And we think to ourselves, well, there you are, pastor. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm with you so far. A little shaky on the demon part, but now you're calling me a sinner. And uh, I'm not sure I appreciate that. Hey, I understand that. I understand. And maybe you're here today, and you're not even sure you've done a whole lot wrong. Or if you have, it's not that bad. I mean, after all, compare it to someone else. You know, you come out smoking, don't you? You come out pretty good. Um, there was a play, book play, called The Trial by Franz Kafka. And it was a parable in a way, what we think about sin. Joseph K. was the character. He was arrested by the authorities. And so he asked them, he says, what have I done wrong? And they wouldn't tell him. And he called for superiors and they wouldn't tell him. They were interrogating him, but never telling him what he did wrong. And the story ends where I think, if I recall, he's executed out in the courtyard, but he never knew what he did wrong. And so here is society as a whole, maybe not in this church, but certainly society as a whole. Look, I haven't done that much wrong. And I really don't believe in absolute truth, so therefore don't tell me that I'm a sinner. Just don't tell me that. But deep in our heart, we know something's wrong. We know something's wrong. And when the, and the pastor gets up, we read the Bible, and we... We don't even have to read about anything specific. Not really. Just all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Well, I don't know. You know, I, I know I feel, you make me feel guilty. I can't make you feel guilty. I cannot make you feel guilty. Let me, let me just give you an illustration of this. Suppose I were to preach a sermon and the bulk of the sermon was about how everyone, everyone, has a left shoulder problem. That's right. Everyone here, touch your left shoulder. Please touch your own. Anybody else? <laughs> your left shoulder. And it hurts. 
Doesn't it hurt? Man, your left shoulder hurts. And everybody, because of the fall of man, everybody's left shoulder hurts. Now you're thinking, you know, I just don't like to be reminded of the fact my left shoulder hurts all the time. No, you're, you're sort of thinking, well, it doesn't apply to me because, my, you know, my left shoulder doesn't hurt. So all I'm preaching, just a few people with a left shoulder problem thinking, oh, maybe it's because I've done something wrong. You know, I don't know. My point is this. If you're really convinced that you are not a sinner, then this sermon would not apply to you. Well, this part of the sermon, which does not apply. You know, the old saying is you throw a rock in a pack of dogs, what happens? It's the one that, the only one that yeps is the one you hit. Deep down, we know. We know something's wrong. We don't want to admit it. We don't want to talk about it. We want to deny it. We want to dismiss it in some way. And the world tells us that's okay because you start feeling guilty and you're going to feel bad about yourself. Your self-esteem's going to hurt and it's going to cause mental problems. But we know, like Joseph K., there's something wrong. What is it? Well, it's sin in our life and we're separated from God. There's an emptiness there. There's something there that just will not fill. And there's only two ways that we can approach it. I can either tell you you're okay. I can do that. Everybody here is okay. And everybody goes out here with absolution. Well, the, the pastor says, I'm okay. So that might, I must be okay. Because the pastor said so. But deep within, you still know it. Boy, there's just something there. You know it. Something's not right. The second way we can do that is teach forgiveness, which is this, this church does. Teach the forgiveness of sin. Listen, when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and took on your sins and mine, and the moment that we receive him into our heart, the Bible says this, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. East and west never meet. Micah 7:19, you will cast our sins in the depths of the sea. In fact, this word forgive in this passage means to throw away. You can be forgiven of everything that you've ever done by trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord. How is God going to get you back to his design? How can he do it? Because he has the power over your trials in life, he, the, the results of the fall. He has power over the one who really caused the fall, and he has power over the thing that's keeping you from God's design in your life. The forgiveness of sins. You know, the amazing part about this story, if I can just pause for just a moment as I close, the amazing part to me of this story is that everybody's afraid. Now, that's not amazing to me. But the second part is this. Look in verse uh, 27 of um, chapter 8. The men marvel, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea Obey him. They were amazed. Verse 34, and behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Why? Well, it wasn't because of economic reasons, the way you read about sometimes. They, they were afraid of Jesus. They were scared. Verse 8 of chapter 9, and the crowd saw it. They were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They were afraid. They were more afraid after the miracle they were than they were before. Why? It's like Peter when he was fishing. 
And he, he turned to Jesus after it got this great amount of fish in their net because Jesus just kind of waved his hand or whatever and it happened. And he turned around to Jesus to say, look at what we've got. Look at, what, look at all this. This is the biggest catch in history. When he turned around, his eyes met Jesus. He fell down to his knees. He said, depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. He was afraid. The awesomeness. I can remember that time in my living room, uh, standing in the doorway. It wasn't a door, just a doorway. It didn't have a door to it. it. went from the kitchen to the living room. And a man had come over with um, his friend, my dad's friend, he was an evangelist. He was a, a pastor, really, from another place, and he came in to preach for his friend. And they came over to visit my dad. That's how much my friend, or dad, my dad's friend, Leon was his name, was so burdened for my dad to be saved. And he shared the gospel with him in the living room that night. And for the first time in my life, about the age of 14, I felt the power of the Holy Spirit in that place. And I was afraid. Man, I was afraid. I saw myself for the first time, really, of who I was. And I was beginning to see, for real, in spite of the fact that I've been in church almost all my life, I began to see for real who Jesus was. And I was awestruck by the whole experience. They were afraid because of who they were coming in front of. Who was there? And the reality of truth began to hit their heart. And they were moved with conviction. Later, verse 9, I can imagine Matthew seeing all this, seeing what's going on. The writer of this gospel was a tax collector. And in verse 9, it says, And Jesus passed from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He's a tax collector, someone who's hated someone who often ripped people off. It says, Jesus said, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, Matthew, I believe, because he wrote about it, he was an eyewitness to these three miracles. He was awestruck. Maybe he was so afraid, he says, I've got to get out of here. He goes back to his tax booth. And to leave this, by the way, is a government job, Roman government. You left it, that was fine, but you never got it back, and it was a cushy job. You got a lot of money for it, at least for back then. And Jesus came by after seeing all this, and he's just awestruck. And he looks up, at a, he, he recognizes the sandals and then the robe. He looks up in the face of Jesus, and Jesus says, come, follow me. What other decision could a man make? He drops what he has. He follows Jesus. He takes his hands off his own life. And it was worth it. In fact, these stories are so huge, you could find some of them in another gospel. And you could find two of them in three gospels. Three of them. Told over and over and over again. Because the importance, the miracle, if it wasn't for the storm, the miracle couldn't happen. Wasn't for the gathering demoniac, the miracle couldn't have happened. Without what we saw in this past passage about the paralytic and that opportunity, the miracle comes with a trial. With heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe this morning, you want to say to the Lord, Lord, I, I need you. I want to take my hands off my own life. 
I want you to help me return to the design for my life, the relationship I should be having with you. And I've never received Christ into my heart. Maybe that's your cry today. Maybe you're like me back when I was 14. Never had done that before. Never pretended to, really. But today is the day that you're awestruck with the power of God in your life. And so you want to receive Christ. You can do that. And I'll ask you to do this by praying this prayer with me silently as I pray aloud. Lord God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for my sins. Thank you for defeating the devil and being Lord of the storms of my life. Help me to return to be more like Jesus, my original design. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.